Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. And we're walking through 1 Corinthians together, taking little bite-sized chunks every week so we can chew on it for a while and digest it. And we're asking God, through His Holy Spirit, to take it each weekend and apply it to our lives as individuals and our families, but beyond that, to our whole church, to this church body. And uh, I trust that He is doing that in your life. Well, I've been told that I'm a little strange. Um, people have said that to me a few times over the years, that I have some quirkiness about me, and I'll admit it, but there's some reason for that. I was raised on the West Coast, uh, in Southern California, the land of fruits and nuts, uh, back in the 60s and the 70s, so that would make anybody a little bit quirky. But I was raised by parents who are from Iowa. So I was raised with strong Midwestern values on the Wild West Coast. So certainly that would be enough to goof about anybody up. Um, I do have some quirks. I, um, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, which actually borders on insanity, I think. Um, I love to eat raw yellow cake batter. I've told you that before. I'm about due for a binge on that, I think. Um, I'm addicted to rocking chairs. I have rocking chairs all over my house. Every room I go to has a rocking chair. My office here has a rocking chair. If you come and see me in my office and ask me where you should sit, I'll say anywhere except that chair. Keep your hands off my rocking chair. That's where I'll be. Um, <laughs> I, uh, what else? I drive old cars. Um, not like 2004 cars, but like 1991 cars, hand-me-down cars. That's a little quirky. Um, and as far as what pertains to our message today, I have a quirk in that I, I love to visit churches recreationally. Um, and people have told me that that's a little strange, that I'm a little weird in that. Most people are trying to you know, get away from church as much as possible. But I like to go visit churches. When I go on vacation... I like to schedule in of visiting a few churches. When I go on study break every summer, I go around the country and visit churches. I played hooky uh, from this church last weekend, but you didn't see me at the lake or at the golf course. I was actually driving around Columbus worshiping with four different churches, congregations, and just, I mean, I love that. That's a good day for me, doing that. And I know that's a little strange. I know it's a little quirky, but... Maybe that just confirms what you already suspected about me anyway. But along those lines, we're going to talk about church today. And the passage we're looking at, um, Paul gives us God's view of church. Wouldn't you like to have God's view of the church? I know we all have our own view of what it is, but he's going to share God's view with us. And in doing so, he uses a couple of metaphors. A couple of word pictures to help us understand God's view of church. So if you go back to verse 9 that Pastor Brian ended with last week, you see these pictures. He ends by saying, you are God's field. You are God's what? Building. There they are. Do you see the two pictures? You're God's field. That's an agricultural picture of the church with planters and waterers and harvesters and that sort of thing. And now he shifts to a new word picture. You are God's building. And you say, well, what kind of building are we or is the church? And he tells us a little bit more in verse 16 when he says, you are God's 
temple. You are the temple of God. And of course, that's a, an Old Testament reference to the place where God dwelt, the presence of God dwelt, and where worship was offered up to God from his people. And so Paul is going to describe the church in terms of a building metaphor. And he's going to talk to us about that. He's going to tell us how important it is, how we build that building as we co-labor with God in doing that. And then he's going to explain why that is so important, how we do our work. So that's where he's going. He's going to tell us about the owner of the building, the architect of the building, the framer of the building, the building's foundation, the other builders who are building on that foundation. He's going to talk extensively about the materials used to build the building and then finish up by talking about the final building inspection that's coming. So follow me along with this. If you have a uh, worship folder, you can reach in there and pull the study guide out and you can follow along with us. The church, God's building. First, the owner. As we read in verse 9, you are God's field, God's building, so who owns the church? God. God is the owner. And he alone possesses the full rights then of ownership. He can commission some churches and decommission others. He can raise some churches up for His glory, and He can pull the card on others who are not pleasing to Him. The owner of the church, the church universal, the church in Corinth, the church in Gehenna, is God. It's His church. Second, look at verse 10 of chapter 3. According to the grace of God, that's the owner, given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So now he's talking about who the master builder is. And who wrote this? Paul. So who's the I? It's Paul. Paul's saying, I was the master builder commissioned by God to lay the foundation there in the church in Corinth. So the owner is God. The master builder was Paul, sent by God to lay the foundation for that church. He calls himself a master builder. In the Greek, the word is architecton. Isn't that interesting? The architect. Paul says, I was, I was the designer. Now, he wasn't all proud. He wasn't saying, you know, look at me. I'm awesome. He was saying, it's God's grace in my life. I'm honored. I'm privileged to serve in this way as the architect for that church in Corinth. But it's interesting. The word refers to more than just a designer. It refers to what we would call in our day a design builder. A designer builder. Not just the guy who sits in the office drawing up the plans, but the guy who's out on the the construction site getting his hands dirty, laying the foundation. Paul says, I was graced by God to be the design builder of the church in Corinth. So the building has an owner. That's God. It was designed by a master builder, Paul who laid the foundation there. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months, preaching and teaching Jesus, laying that foundation. Then he left, and another pastor came in behind him, whose name was, you know, Apollos. Pastor Apollos. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on that foundation. And he's referring to Apollos. We might call Apollos the framer. Okay? So the foundation was laid by Paul. He moved on. 
Apollos came in and started building the ministry on the foundation that Paul laid. So he's framing up the walls, in a sense, figuratively speaking. Now, Apollos followed Paul. He was Paul's successor as pastor of that church. And just because of that fact alone, I have great respect for Apollos because he was following a legend. And take it from me, that is tough, tough work to do. You don't want to follow a legend. But Apollos did, so I'm sure he had flaws just like I do, but I respect him for just you know, trying to fill those shoes. And some people are called by the owner to come into an existing situation and build a ministry on the foundation that has been laid by somebody else. Now, Paul himself preferred to not do that. In another place, he says, I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. But that's what Apollos was called to do. And as we'll see, Paul was very concerned that Apollos and all the other people who were building on that foundation be very, very careful in how they went about their work. All right. So, the church has an owner, and that is God, has a master builder, that was, the framer was, and now the foundation. Look at verse 10 again. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Critically important to any construction project, any building, is the foundation. And he says, and someone else is building upon it, that was Apollos, let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's saying the foundation was a person. And it was not Paul, and it was not Apollos, it was Jesus Christ. And when I read this, I can sense his concern already. I think two things concern Paul. I think he was worried that someone else might come along and pour a different foundation and start building on that. I think the prospect of that bothered him greatly. And I think he was concerned that workers might build the church in ways that were not appropriate or not fitting for the foundation that he had laid, Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about foundations for a moment. When it comes to building a building, laying right foundations is very, very critical, very important. We've got several contractors here in this church, and uh, I've asked one of them today, Craig Arledge, to uh, stand up and talk to us a little bit about the importance of laying right foundations. And Craig's a small group leader around here and involved in all kinds of ministries and missions trips. So, Craig, uh, talk with us a little bit about foundations. Good morning. I've uh, seen a few foundations. I've been a concrete contractor for the last 20 years of my life. Um, the first 20 years of my life, I, I lived in the home of a concrete contractor. And if you want to assume that those 20-year uh, segments are consecutive, you can do that. That's fine. Um, there's a lot of different variables to consider when design, designing a foundation. Um, it depends on what part of the country you're in, climate, the size of the building. You know, obviously a bridge is uh, going to have a different foundation than your your home, and this building is going to be different than a high-rise. But um, there are several variables that, that just don't change. And the first thing you have to start with is um, a good architect and engineer to establish what exactly you need 
to hold the structure up. Um, the following thing is no matter how good that blueprint is, how good that plan, uh, if you hire a craftsman to install it that doesn't follow the plan, you can also run into major difficulty there. Um, sometimes uh, foundations are designed wrong or just installed wrong. When that happens, uh, there's usually cracks in the structure that's set above it. And uh, when those appear, um, it takes a little more work to go back and make repairs uh, because of something that wasn't done right to start with. But it can be done. A little extra shoring up, a little extra excavation. Um, sometimes, though, the structure can be so faulty that the only thing you can do is just tear it down and completely start over. And that happens, too. So I guess the, uh, the main ingredients of, of a solid uh, structure is uh, a good planner, a good architect, someone to uh, put all that on paper and, uh, well, on these days on a computer screen, but, um, and then a good craftsman to uh, follow up and make sure that it's built right. Thanks, Craig. So whether you're building a physical structure, a physical building, or whether you're building a church or a ministry or a family or a marriage or a life, it is so critically important that you build on a solid, sure, stable, steady foundation. And Paul says, when I came to Corinth, I laid a foundation, and that foundation was Jesus Christ. You might remember chapter 2 and verse 2 where he said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Jesus and his cross was the foundation for that church. And I would submit to you that he wasn't just speaking the words, Jesus is the foundation. I think it was Jesus-centeredness. If you read chapters 1 and 2 and 3, you see the name of Jesus over and over and over and over again. Jesus-centeredness was the foundation of that church that Paul had laid. Now, Paul's going to tell us that other people are building on that foundation too. Not just Apollos, not just pastors and preachers and leaders and teachers, but other people are building on that foundation in that church. Verse 10 says, let each one take care how he builds on it. That kind of implies there's going to be more than just one person. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation, verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So I think we need to remember that God is building his church but he has chosen to use people as his co-laborers with him, his fellow workers. So the blank there is God's people, the other builders of the church. The inference is that all the people in that church had a part in building it. It's the picture of a construction site where all of God's people are working on the church. Everybody's got a hard hat on. Everybody's got their tool belt on. Everybody's carrying a hammer or a nail gun and and doing the work. Everybody is involved in building the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Like it says in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, And He, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So everyone is involved, or should be, in building the church. This is how God views the church. So, just to review, the owner of the church is God. The master builder is 
the framer is, the foundation is, and the other builders are. Now he's going to talk about the building materials. We read it a moment ago. Verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Let's stop there. So Paul states there's a variety of building materials that can be used to build the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But do you notice they fall into two categories? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Do you see that? Two categories. The first we might call quality materials. Quality building materials. Gold. Silver, precious stones, these represent valuable, durable, beautiful materials that will result in a strong, lasting ministry that is pleasing to God, pleasing to the owner. And then there's wood, hay, and straw. Now, those are not bad, evil things. Those were just common, everyday, garden variety building materials, very common in that day for building the dwellings that people lived in, kind of inexpensive, kind of flimsy, kind of unsightly, and certainly flammable if a fire should happen to break out. Wood, hay, and straw, poof! Have a huge conflagration. Certainly a a structure made of those materials would not be able to withstand hurricanes or earthquakes or stress. Now, there's an implication here in what he's saying that we need to to get. The foundation for the church is laid. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. People are building on that foundation using building materials. I believe he's inferring this, that the quality of the foundation should determine the quality of the building materials used. You see that? The implication is that we ought to be building the church, we ought to be serving in the church and working in the church using gold, silver, and precious stones. Would you grant me that? That those are quality building materials, and it's only fitting and appropriate that we use those materials building on the foundation of Jesus Christ because those are quality materials and He's a quality foundation. But it does beg the question, and it's probably the one that's rattling around in your brain right now, What exactly are these materials? What do they represent? Answer? He doesn't tell us. Here, we have to look at the context in other of his writings to find out what are gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, a year ago, I did a sermon on this. It was called the Ultimate Awards Ceremony. And in that message, it was the whole topic of the message, talking about the the building materials and the final inspection and what's going to survive and what's going to get rewarded and what's what's not. And I go through the New Testament and with a view towards discovering what are the quality building materials. So I don't have time to go into that right now. Get the CD, okay? Check it out. From last May, the Ultimate Awards Ceremony. Let me just say this. Since building materials are anchored either directly or indirectly, to the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ, I would contend that the building materials in general represent Christ-centered ministry. 
Christ-centered preaching and teaching, Christ-centered discipling and mentoring and partnering, Christ-centered serving and giving, Christ-centered motives. Remember, the building materials are anchored to the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. So I believe that Paul's making a case here that our ministry, our serving, our working in the church needs to be Christ-centered in every way. In every way. Cheap, shabby materials, then, I believe we could infer, would be man-centered materials. See the difference? The quality materials are Christ-centered. The cheap, flimsy, shabby materials are man-centered materials. So I believe that this passage, theologians would say, teaches us that our ecclesiology should be founded upon our Christology. Amen? You're like, what? (laughs) What I'm saying is, the way we think about the church ought to be founded and built upon what we believe about Jesus Christ. Jesus comes first. Christology comes first. We've got to work out what we believe about Jesus first then talk about what we believe about the church. When you get that reversed, when you get it backwards, when you start with church and not with Jesus, the building that gets constructed is misshapen and not built on the solid foundation, and it can get messed up. I've seen it. Now, oh, let me say this. We celebrated St. Patrick's Day this week, right? How many of you wore green? Okay, some of you. Well, I've got a quote here from St. Patrick. And it's not about beer or leprechauns. Listen to this. Here's what he wrote. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ where I lie down. Christ where I sit down, Christ where I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks about me. Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. I don't know what he thought about beer and leprechauns, but I like what he thought about Jesus. That our lives should be saturated with Jesus Christ. Behind and before, beneath and above, all around. You know, when you become a Christian, you don't ask Jesus to wrap his life around your life. You say, no, I'm going to wrap my life, Jesus, around your life. That's the call to become a Christian. When you see Jesus for who he really is, the supreme treasure in all the universe, the most valuable person, you'll say, let me give you my life, Jesus. As my friend Ed said recently at a conference I was at, Jesus does not want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. Jesus-centered church, ministry, family, marriage, life. Now Paul's going to tell us why how we build on that foundation is so important. Verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest. Revealed, apparent, obvious. For the day will disclose it. You might want to circle that little phrase, the day. What day? The day of the final building inspection. 
That's what he's talking about. The day will reveal it because it will be revealed by what? Fire. Oh, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, survives what? The blaze, the fire, in other words, gold, silver, and precious stones, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Loss of what? Reward. He'll miss out. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, as the NIV, only as one escaping through the flames. You say, well, why does it matter how we work and serve in the church of God? It matters for three reasons. Number one, because a day has been determined for a final building inspection. And this is true of all buildings, right? I remember it with this building when it was completed back in 1997. The inspector had to come when all the construction was done, inspect everything and sign off on it before we could occupy it and use it. This is normal in the world of construction. And Paul's using that as a, as a metaphor, and he's saying, you know what, there's coming a day of inspection when the quality of every person's work in the church is going to be revealed and evaluated. Now, we don't know when that day is. The owner knows, but we don't know. The event where this is going to take place is called the Bema Seat Judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the Bible talks about seven judgments in God's plan. This is one of them. This is not a judgment of to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. This is a judgment of people who are believers, genuine believers. It's not a judgment of their sin, because their sins were already judged on the cross. This is an award ceremony. It's a heavenly awards banquet that will make the Olympic awards banquet look like nursery school stuff. There's going to be tens of millions of people there. And people are going to be rewarded. The quality of their work is going to be revealed by testing by fire. Somehow, some way, I don't know how it's going to work, the owner is also the chief arsonist. And he's going to set fire to everything you've ever done. Everything I've ever done. And some of it's going to go up and smoke and just leave a pile of ashes and some of it's going to endure and survive the blaze and that will be rewarded. Say, I don't understand that. Get the CD that I did last year. I actually listened to it this week in preparation for this. It's, it's decent, okay? Get it? It explains the whole thing. What's going to happen? How? When? I believe this is going to take place immediately after the rapture of the church. The true character of our lives, our ministry, our service to God is going to get revealed. Some will be rewarded and some won't. Rewards will be given and received on that day. One of the last verses in the whole Bible, Jesus promises to come back. He says, I'm, I'm coming back and my reward is with me. I'm going to reward my people for their faithful and true service, their Christ-centered motives and service to me. I'm going to reward that. And it says some will lose rewards. They will suffer loss. In other words, if you worked in the church in a, in a way that God deems unworthy on that day and it doesn't survive the fiery gaze of Jesus Christ and ends up in a 
pile of ashes, you will miss out on wonderful rewards. You will be saved, it says, but you will regret how you lived and how you served and how you ministered. You know that that verse in Revelation, speaking of heaven, it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And you read that and you think, I thought, I thought heaven was a happy place. Like, are there going to be tears? And I do believe that up front there are going to be tears. At the Bema Seat Judgment, when you're standing there before Jesus Christ, locking eyes with the second person of the Holy Trinity for the first time, and you're already transformed, so you're seeing him as he is. And then you're going to think about the way you lived your life on the earth. And you're going to go, oh, what was I thinking? I mean, Jesus is just, he's worth everything. Why didn't I give him everything? Why didn't I just give him everything? And there's going to be tears as we regret how we lived our lives. And we see a pile of ashes, you know, so much that was just done for ourselves and man-centered and self-motivated. And Oh, Jesus, I wish I had more of the gold and silver and precious stones. And then thankfully he's going to come and wipe the tears away. Think about that. You say, well, that's a pretty sobering thought. Yeah, and if that weren't enough, look at verses 16 and 17. This is a warning from Paul, the master builder, the apostle, the founder of that church. Do you not know, church, are you ignorant of this, that you are God's temple? See, now he reveals it clearly. He's not talking about bricks and mortar and steel and concrete and Drywall and all that. He's not talking about a physical building. He's saying you, and that's in the plural. Y'all. <laughs> Y'all are God's temple. All of you collectively together. You're the temple of God. And God's Spirit dwells in you. You're the dwelling place of the Holy God as the church. In verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. His concern comes through loud and clear, doesn't it? This is a stern and sobering warning to any who might be destroying the church or attempting to destroy it, particularly by sowing seeds of discord in the congregation or tearing the church apart by creating fan clubs and factions and divisions. He's coming back to that again. In essence, he's saying, look, you mess with God's dwelling you defile God's temple, you destroy God's church, and you better watch out. God's the owner of the thing, and He's very jealous over it. And it says He will destroy you. And I've seen that happen a few times over the years. I pray to God that none of us would experience that. Paul's teaching some very important lessons in this part of 1 Corinthians. Lessons about God and God's church and God's people. The first, I think he's reminding everybody that the church belongs to God. It's God's church. He owns it. He's got the prerogative to do in his church whatever he wishes. He's the owner. Second, I think he's teaching that 
God graciously gifts certain people. Are these in your notes? Okay. God graciously gifts certain people in unique ways and commissions them to do pioneering work, just like Paul. Some are called to go plant the gospel in new places and lay foundations and extend God's kingdom rule there. Third, I believe he's teaching us that laying right foundations is very important work. Whether you're talking about a church, a ministry, a family, a marriage, or a life. And when it comes to a church, laying right foundations is the work of what I'll call apostolic leaders. It carries great accountability. Some people are gifted in this way. I'm not talking about like first century apostles who wrote the New Testament, but I'm talking about People have been gifted by God to go and pioneer and plant new churches. Fourth, he's teaching us that God graciously allows people to co-labor with him, doesn't he? In the work of building the church. To use their gifts to serve and to build each other up. And then, of course, he's saying that God's people will one day be rewarded by Christ based on how they worked and served in his church. So now, let me take a few moments, as we've been doing, and ask the question, how might this apply to us? What might the Holy Spirit want to say from this passage to the body of Christ at New Life, to this church? As I thought and prayed through this, I... Several things came to mind. Let's talk about foundations for a moment. You're building a life. You're building a marriage. You're building a family. You're building a ministry, a small group. You're involved in building this church. Laying the right foundation is critically important. See, because here's what happens. Like in this church building, there's a few, like back over here, there's a few cracks now appearing in the walls. And you know, some of you look at your, your marriage and you say, there's some cracks starting to appear in the walls of my marriage or some cracks starting to appear in the walls of my small group or my life. And your first inclination is to think, oh, i got a wall problem. I need to get some plaster and fix the crack. But the truth of the matter is, that when you see that spidering beginning in the walls, it's revealing not a wall problem, but a foundation problem. And it's the gracious work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and show us where we've built on a faulty, shifting sand foundation. And sometimes, he'll get the jackhammer out. And he'll start breaking up that old foundation, like Craig was talking about, because the structure that's been built on it is flimsy and faulty and misshapen and it's not going to endure anything. He says, you know what? Your marriage, your family needs a new foundation. Your ministry, your small group needs a new foundation. Your life needs a new foundation. It's a big part of the work of God in me the last couple of years is revealing more of a man-centered foundation than I would have admitted to. So you know what, Steve? No foundation can be laid other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So let's be careful as individuals, as families, to build on the right foundation. 
still on the right foundation. Let's talk about serving for a moment because obviously Paul said everybody's building in the church. It's not just, you know, the pastors and the teachers. It's not just the people who are up here on the platform. And Wasn't it kind of cool to see Laura mess up a little bit there and just kind of own that? And You know, we can just be ourselves around here, right? None of us are perfect. Well, what would happen if we became the kind of church where each of us were spurring each other on to serve Christ by serving his church? We're all building. I mean, we should be. We, we should all have our hard hats on and, and our tool belts on and our, you know, nail gun. Of course, some of you would be dangerous with a nail gun. So we'll give you a hammer. You know, that might be dangerous too. Maybe you can stand off to the side and supervise or something, but... We all need to be serving. There is a place for you to serve in your church here. And I'll say it this way. You need to be serving in your church here. And there's great joy in serving. There's great joy in using your gifts, bringing what you have to offer to Jesus in his church and saying, how can I contribute? How can I help build? Am I supposed to be framing over here or putting up drywall or putting roofing material on? What's my part in my church? You see, I think of the church in terms of the superstructure and the infrastructure. The superstructure is what you see on a weekend. You know, and you have people on the platform and they're exercising their gifts and ministering and you can kind of get the idea that that's church. But that's not church. That's just the superstructure. The infrastructure is every single member serving and giving and connecting and using their gifts. And if you have a big church with a huge superstructure and no infrastructure, you know what's going to happen? Over time... It's going to collapse because it wasn't fortified from the inside with steel beams and girders and all of that stuff. And we want to be a church that has a strong, solid infrastructure where everybody's in the game, everybody's serving. I challenge you, if you're not serving in this body somewhere, you need to be serving and there's a place for you to serve. We have openings right now in our orchestra and our hospitality teams, our ushers and greeters, our technical crew. We have openings in our children's ministries, our student areas, small groups. There is a place for you to serve. And I know in a crowd this size, there's dozens of you who call New Life your church, but you're not in the game. You're not serving. And you need to be. So I don't even know where to start. No, I've never held a nail gun before. Well, then we won't give you one. I say start where the needs are. Just start where the needs are. Maybe that's not where you'll be in five years. That's okay, but just start there. And in a few moments, I'll tell you how you can just kind of jumpstart that process. Serving. It's great joy. Let's talk about planting for a minute. I want to ask you this. Would you join the elders of New Life Church in praying that God would use this church to plant four brand new churches in the next three years. Now, this church has always had church planting in its DNA from the beginning. We have a vision to plant 20 churches in 20 years, and seven have been planted so far. I'm talking about God-centered, Christ as the foundation, Spirit-led, Word-loving, transformational churches. 
that we believe everybody in central Ohio and, and beyond needs a church like that close by in their community. Now, it is crazy. We've, you know, we've planted churches at a certain pace over the years, so to, but to plant four churches in the next three years is admittedly crazy, especially in this economy. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit with human wisdom, but we're not trying to operate according to human wisdom. We're trying to follow God. And I would ask you to join with our elders and our pastors and our ministry leadership team to be praying, God, use us to give birth. We, we're a mothering church. We want to have babies. We want to give birth to four churches in the next three years. And God is raising up pioneering leaders in this church and coming to this church who desire to lay Christ-centered foundations in these new churches. And he's putting it on people's hearts to join up with these launch teams and begin to seek God and pray and send us is their prayer. Let me just mention one of those um, individuals, church planters. His name is Chris Winesett. You guys know Chris? Chris is here. Raise your hand, Chris. Chris and his lovely bride, Nikki, have a boatload of kids. Well, three? Okay. They have three kids. And Chris and Nikki were part of our ministry back in the day in student ministries, went and served in some other churches for a while, came back to us, and he's been serving a church planter internship here for the last 15 months. Learning, growing, interviewing church planters, learning preaching. God is starting to gravitate people towards Chris and Nikki with a view towards planting a church at some point in the Westerville, uptown Westerville area where they'll plant the gospel and lay a foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's moving. God's bringing people to them to form this, what we call a launch team. You see, this is, this is cool stuff. I don't know. This gets my adrenaline pumping and my heart beating a little bit faster as I think about spreading the gospel in the kingdom of, of God through planting new churches and, and the right kind of churches. So be praying. We've got... Three others kind of in the incubator <laughs> that we're asking God to birth and bring into reality here. And this is not the sort of deal where you say, well, Pastor Steve's going to plant four churches. No, I'm not. All of us. This is all of us. Because if people leave here to go there, guess what? There's a need for people to step up here in the mother church. And so everybody's got to take a step up. This is, this is something the whole church needs to embrace and pray about and ask God to do it in his time. Amen? We don't want to run ahead of the Lord. We don't want to lag behind God. We want to keep right in step with the Spirit. So God, do this through us. And as part of this effort, we're looking at opening up a school of ministry this fall here at New Life where you can become better equipped to minister to other people. Some of you have an inkling about being part of a launch team, a church planning team. You can, you can begin to receive some classroom training here. Imagine being able to take a class on Romans or Ephesians right here through your own church or you know, spirit-led leadership or ministry right here through our school of ministry. So these are some new initiatives that we're just trying to soak and nurture and bathe in prayer and say, God, if this is of you, do it. Make it happen for the glory of Christ. It's going to take all of us. 
with our head in the game for it to happen like Jesus wants it to happen. Well, one last thing, and Paul keeps coming back to this notion of division and dividing. Apparently that church needed it. Ours probably does too. Here's the message that Paul would give to divisive people. Be afraid. Be very afraid of God. Because he's the owner of the building. He supervised the laying of the foundation. He loves his church. He loves unity. And if you're sowing seeds of discord, pitting people against each other, creating factions and divisions, God is a jealous God. And it says he will destroy people who are trying to destroy his church. Strong word. Let's take it to heart. Take it to heart. Well, here's how I'd like to finish today. Would you all stand with me? And um, if you're being baptized in a few moments, you can go ahead and make your way now to the ladies' changing room or the men's changing room. You can break away and do that. But the rest of you, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to join hands with those around you just as a way of symbolizing that we are one body, everybody here at New Life Kahana. You may not even know the person that you're holding their hand with, but we are the body of New Life Church. And I'm going to ask you to take the next 60 seconds and pray for your church out loud following the example of the church in Acts 4 where it says they raised their voices together in unison to God and prayed. And let's, let's just call out to God, amen, to use us, to purify us with his holy fire, to use us, to birth new churches from us, to purify our own hearts so that our service here to him is pleasing to him and will end up one day being revealed as gold, silver, and precious stones for the glory of Christ. So, 60 seconds. Let's just call out to God all together as a church using your lips out loud, okay? Let's pray together.